dog poo that we'd responsibly picked up from our dogs and then irresponsibly turned into a weapon. Uh, you know the kind of thing where it starts out as a bit of a joke and you throw it at one person and then the other one throws it back and at some point it moves from a joke to one person genuinely gets angry and the other person gets angry back and it kind of ramps up and I can't remember who started it, but I certainly remember that I finished it as this kind of bag of dog poo turned into this sludge and I whipped it across my brother's back and it just exploded everywhere, all over him, all over his clothes. And in that moment, I realised something huge and terrifying was coming as I was going to go home and I was going to get massively busted by my parents. And so I made my brother strip down and take off his clothes and uh, throw them under a tap at someone's house and wash it all off. We got our stories straight. I did everything I could to try and avoid the coming wrath. And I thought I did a pretty good job, right? We got most of the stains out, no more evidence as our stories were good. Uh, But it turns out you can't just walk into your house with your clothes soaking wet and no questions asked. What do you do when you know that something huge and something terrifying is coming? Anything you can to be safe. That's a trivial example, but we all know that feeling, right, of the dread of knowing something huge and terrifying is coming. In some places in the world, that is very real for people right now, where people hear the warning alarms of rockets incoming, absolutely huge and terrifying and so they find shelter hide anywhere they can doing anything you can to find safety what do you do when you know that something huge and terrifying is coming anything you can to be safe Joel chapter 1, we heard about the day of the Lord, a day when God would wipe out all evil and all evildoers, sin and sinners, a day when God would put all things right. And it sounds like a wonderful day, and it is, except we learnt that Israel are actually part of the evildoers. They are not right with God. They're sinners, and that God's judgment of sin and wiping out of evil would include judging and wiping out them. In chapter 2, we saw a terrifying picture of this day, and we were left with the question in chapter 2, verse 11, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, not cool, but terrifying. Who can endure it? Not Israel back then, and not us. You need to know that a day is certainly coming, a day that you cannot escape where God will call all things to account. He'll deal with all evil, all sin, and everything that's not how it should be, which includes us. He'll deal with us in our sin in all the ways that we are not perfect like God. Something huge and terrifying is coming. And the right question, chapter 2, verse 11, the day of the Lord is great, and very awesome. Who can endure it? What can you do? When you know something huge and terrifying is coming, what can you do? In this passage, God tells us exactly what we can do. It is incredible that God in his grace, instead of just bringing this day without telling us it's coming, he tells us in advance so we can respond rightly before it comes. This is a wonderful passage we have before us this morning. What can we do? Point one, 
return to the Lord. Have a look at verse 12. <clears throat> Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. It's possible to return to God, to, to come to him in some way where he'll deal with us in mercy instead of wrath. How? How should we come to him? We see two ways. First, return to me with all your heart. If you want any hope on that day, come back to God with everything you've got. What does that look like? Well, he tells us with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. There was the point that we have to visibly express all these sad things in extreme ways. No, the point is verse 13. Have a look. Rend your hearts and not your garments. That word rend, to, to rend means to tear something to pieces. And I love that image, tearing your heart to pieces. Genuine repentance isn't about doing outward things. It's genuine inward rending of your heart that will inevitably show itself in outward ways. The point is to have a heart that genuinely grieves your sin because you understand how abhorrent it is before a holy God. In light of the great and terrible day of the Lord, return to him with all your heart. Is this something you need to grow in? Is being, in being genuinely cut to the heart about your sin? My reflection on myself is that I mourned the bad surf on my holiday and I mourned my bad sleep far more than I mourned the treachery of my sin before God. How far is my heart from God at times? Anything like me? We can often make sin out like it's no big deal. Ah, it doesn't really matter that I got drunk the other day. Everyone lies just a little bit to make themselves look better. I don't do that thing all the time or as much as others. It's not really stealing. If you knew what I'd been through, you'd cut me some slack. Or you think, I'm going through life, I'm mostly going pretty well, and I just have these occasional little slip-ups and blips. We can be comfortable with our sin in a way that God is not. The reality is that we have embraced that which God hates. And we can hate that which he loves. And it grieves God. And it's a problem when it doesn't grieve us. If you think you need to grow in this, it can help just to start naming your sin before God. Tell him, without excusing, without evading, without minimising, God, I lied. I committed adultery in my heart. I was hot-tempered. I was ashamed of you. I was greedy. When you start to do that before God, you will start to grieve your sin. And the point isn't to just sit in grieving. The point is that it should lead to regular, heartfelt repentance, turning from your sin, seriously working at putting it off and turning to the Lord because you want to and you know that you need to, telling God you're sorry and meaning it. Now, you might have never done that before. You'll have an opportunity to do that a bit later. Maybe you've already repented and turned back to the Lord. What should you do? Continue to grieve your sin and repent. Return to the Lord with all your heart ongoingly. Why? We continue to repent because we continue to sin. 
And so, in light of the great and terrible day of the Lord, return to him with all your heart. The second how of returning to the Lord is everyone with urgency. Have a look at verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, that the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. The call is to gather everyone in the land for this moment of corporate repentance. Notice there's no person who doesn't need to return to the Lord. All the people The whole congregation, both the elders and the children, every single person needs to return to the Lord. Even you. How? In what manner should we return to the Lord? Urgently. See, the bride and groom who are on their honeymoon, they're to leave their villa in Bali to kind of gather for this moment of repentance. It's that urgent. We heard our kids minister, Eleanor and Jimmy, they're getting married next week. I hope they haven't booked anything. You should should ask them. Notice, even nursing infants are to gather right now. One of the things that blew me away when I was learning about babies was how often you have to feed them. If you don't know, a new baby, you have to feed up to every two hours. And the thing that really got me was that that two hours doesn't start when you finish the feed. It starts when you start the feed, and that can take up to an hour. And so by the end of that hour, there's kind of one hour left to do all the other things of sleeping, everything you need to do, and then you're back on again. It's crazy. Do you get the point? It's urgent. There's nothing else to do. Don't put it off. Don't let anything get in the way, even when it feels like there's no time. You might be thinking, yeah, maybe I should repent. He's got a point. One day I'll get there. Maybe on my deathbed, some point in the future when I have more time or when I settle down. God says turning back to him is critical. It's urgent. Don't put it off. The consequences are way too high. In light of the great and terrible day of the Lord, return to him with all your heart urgently. Why? Why should we return to the Lord? Again, we get two reasons. And kind of like any good BuzzFeed headline, the second reason will surprise you. First, return to the Lord because of his character. Have a look at verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. (coughs) Return to the Lord because of who he is. As I talked about heartfelt, genuine repentance, did you start to go, I don't know if I've repented properly. I don't know if I've repented enough, if I've felt it enough, if I've meant it enough, I'm not sure. The great news is that God's response to us isn't dependent on the quality of our repentance. It's entirely dependent on the quality of his character. Return to God because he is 
gracious and merciful. His very nature is to give gifts that we don't deserve, is to withhold that which we do deserve. He must judge, but he loves to forgive. It's like a kid who hears the rustle of a wrapping kind of chocolate wrapper being unwrapped three rooms away, and they come around, can I have some chocolate? I'm pretty sure I heard some. Is that the first syllable of someone returning to me? I want to pour out my love. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love. So come back to him because of who he is. He wants you to return. He wants to pour out grace and mercy on you. Second, and surprisingly, I think, return to the Lord because of his glory. Have a look at verse 17. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Notice that God in his graciousness even tells us the words we should say when we come back to him. Which part of it is up to us? There's no part. But what are the words he gives us? Spare your people. Does that make sense? I'm keen to be spared. I don't know about you. But did you notice the reason? (coughs) It's not spare me because it'll be so good for me to not face your judgment. It's all to do with God's name, his reputation, his glory, what the nations will think of God. Salvation is bigger than just about us. In the context, if, if God is forced to destroy Israel, the people that everyone knows belongs to him. It'll mean that his name takes a hit. Couldn't God save his own people? What kind of God destroys his own nation? The chief reason for returning to the Lord is God's glory. To show the world how good he is, to display that he is gracious, merciful, Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This truth, it, it widens and deepens our picture of what's going on with our repentance and salvation. Of course it'll be good for us, but the ultimate aim is not about us. We so often think so small, don't we? The truth of all of life and even in salvation is that it's all about God. Our repentance needs to have a bigger picture in mind than just a ticket to heaven kind of in our back pocket. The ultimate goal in salvation and all things is the glory of God. In light of the great and terrible day of the Lord, return to him with all your heart. Everyone with urgency because of God's character and especially because of God's glory. But how will God respond to those who return to him? That's what we see from verse 18. Point two, rejoice in his blessings. Have a look at verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. God had decimated the land and pronounced judgment on his people. But as soon as the people turn, his heart moves. 
He has pity on his people and is jealous for his land. If you ask to be spared, you can know for certain that he will. But the amazing thing we see in the rest of the chapter is that God isn't just sparing people from his wrath. It's not enough for God just to forgive us. No, it's far more than that. What we see is that he opens the taps of his blessing. He rains down his gifts abundantly, far more than we deserve or could ever ask. Have you taken a moment ever just to reflect on that? To be spared and forgiven alone would be more than enough. But God chooses out of his goodness to bless us in every way. Is unbelievable, isn't it? Have a look at what he'll do. Verse 19. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you'll be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. God will make a way for people to have a thriving relationship with him. Remember last week when the people, when the lamb was destroyed by locusts, the people had nothing that they could offer or sacrifice to God. They, they weren't able to relate with him really at all. But God promises they'll no longer have a dried up relationship with him because of a dried up land. They'll have an abundant, satisfying relationship with everything they need to draw near to him and enjoy him. That's not all. Verse 20 I'll remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rearguard into the western sea. The stanch and foul smell of him will rise, for he's done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. God promises to utterly remove the northerner from them, so there's no need to fear anymore. What's he talking about, the northerner? It could be talking about removing the locust plague or removing an army that's come to destroy them, maybe both. The point is that God will protect them and restore the people and the land. As we keep going, we see that God is actually undoing the curses we saw back in chapter 1, right? So just have a look at chapter 1, verse 18. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. But now, chapter 2, verse 22, Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, and the fig tree and vine tree give their full yield. God is restoring and blessing piece by piece. And then from verse 23, we just see the full picture of physical blessing on display. Abundant rain, a land overflowing with wine and grain. They'll eat and be satisfied. Free Uber Eats for life. They'll never be put to shame again. The high point, God himself will be in their midst. Amazing promises. Notice who does what. What does God do? Everything. I am sending you grain, wine, and oil. I will remove the northerner far from you. He will send the rain. He will restore the years a locust took away. He will cause them to eat in plenty and be satisfied. He will make sure they're never put to shame again. He will be with them and be their God. What's there for us to do? Not much. We don't have to work 
to earn or receive God's blessings. Actually, we are called to do something. Did you see it? Verse 23. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. We're, we're not called to work. We're called to be glad, rejoice in the Lord who blesses. Sometimes we can get so caught up in what we feel like we have to do for God that we forget his call to enjoy and rejoice in his blessings and the one who blesses. Do you have the burden of struggling to accept God's blessings as a free gift? Just feeling like you never quite deserve them. Feeling like you've got to do something to make sure that you're worthy of them. The reality is you can't earn them. God doesn't want you to try. He wants you to enjoy the gifts and rejoice in the giver. It's like a father who just goes over the top with presents for his kids just because he loves them. They don't deserve it. But the dad's great joy is to enjoy his is to watch them enjoy his gifts and rejoice in the giver. But what exactly are the blessings we should be glad and rejoice in the Lord for? Were you thinking that as you read that? Should we expect this stuff? Uh, That's overflowing with Barossa Valley at home. Sourdough starter kits on tap. God to remove every locust, cricket and cockroach from our houses forever. Is that just me? Some people will say yes, in a way. Maybe not those exact things, but when God promises stuff, we should take it seriously. Should we not? So we should expect a life of physical blessing if we follow God and have enough faith. Some people will say that. Some people will say no. This is just the Old Testament. We shouldn't expect what God promises to Old Covenant people. Okay, and so do we just ignore whenever God makes a promise in the Old Testament? Close your eyes, skip over that bit. Should we expect physical blessing? I think the answer is no, yes, and sometimes, in some ways. Let me explain. No, the old covenant was about physical promises and fulfillment via physical blessings and curses. God promised specific people, the nation of Israel, land, offspring, and blessing if they obeyed. And that's what we see play out in Joel, isn't it? What promise of blessing does God give in the new covenant? Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Keep a finger in Joel, but turn to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. What promise of blessing does God give in the new covenant? Should have brought my Bible up. That's bad, isn't it? It's okay. I've got I've got it here, but good for me to flick too. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Give me another sec. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, how? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he goes on to tell us what those are, that we're chosen, that we're adopted, we're redeemed, forgiven, we have a guaranteed inheritance, we have God's Spirit, We have a wonderful, every spiritual blessing. 
We're not promised a life free from sickness, a life full of wealth and abundance. Actually, we're promised to expect suffering. And so, no, we shouldn't expect physical blessing in the same way as we read Joel 2. But we also need to say yes. God does promise even better physical blessing in eternity. At the end of Revelation, we see a picture of a place that is significantly better than the Garden of Eden, a place filled with physical blessing and abundance. No sickness, crying or pain, face-to-face relationship with God. We see a city made of gold and rare jewels with the river of eternal life flowing through it. Yes, we can read God's promises of physical blessing and say, I expect even more. Wow. But... It's not as simple as, I've got spiritual now and physical later. That'd be, be, that'd be neat, wouldn't it? In the present, we experience physical blessing sometimes, in some ways. The wisdom books in the Bible shows us that there is physical blessing to be had as we live God's way in God's world. It's not always guaranteed, but as we live God's way in God's world, we generally should expect blessing. Let me give you a couple examples. So there's a whole bunch of research around how people who are thankful have happier lives. Now, who ought to be more thankful than Christians? We will be blessed as we live thankful lives. The Institute for Family Studies did a study about sex partners before marriage, and they found that couples that hadn't slept with other people before marriage had happier marriages. There's a whole bunch of blessings in marriage as we live God's way. It doesn't mean God can't heal or that you're doomed if you've slept with someone else, but living God's way does lead to blessing. Here's one more example. Here's the the heading of a journal article from the Association for Psychological Science. Giving rather than receiving leads to lasting happiness. Can you think of someone else who said that? I reckon Jesus said that. All this is to say... As we read Joel 2, we have significantly more to be glad and rejoice in, even more than the original readers. We have every spiritual blessing now. We experience some physical blessings now, and we expect far better physical blessing to come than what we even read in Joel 2. So what? Be glad and rejoice What's going to help trigger you to grow in gladness and rejoicing? This week, Monday morning, here's a little one I picked up from a book recently called uh, Enjoying God. Every time I groan, getting off the couch or getting down onto the floor playing with Marley, I've been encouraged by this book to try and thank God and look forward to the day when I won't groan anymore. It's not a bad one. I've found myself groaning a lot. I don't know why. What will God do when we return to him? He will abundantly bless. So be glad and rejoice. But there's one final question, isn't there? How? How can God move from judging to blessing? It seems ridiculous, doesn't it? To go from such a heavy pronouncement of judgment to such incredible blessing. Does God just decide to stop caring about sin? Does he just go full Aussie? Ah, she'll be right, mate. Doesn't matter. Just sweep it on the carpet. No. 
God is still deeply offended and grieved by sin. God's wrath must be poured out on evil and sin. But there is a way for it not to land on us. Joel chapter 2, verse 11. Who can endure the day of the Lord? Hebrews chapter 12, we see. Jesus endured it. On the cross. Joel chapter 2, verse 6, we see that the horror of God's judgment is so severe, it makes all faces grow pale. And now we see that this judgment is born in the body of Jesus, for us, in our place. God didn't say that punishment for sin doesn't matter anymore. He said it matters so much and that you matter so much to him that he took the punishment on himself in his son. Jesus is the ultimate display of God's grace and mercy, giving us what we don't deserve. That's what grace is. And putting on Jesus what we do deserve. That's mercy. Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross is how in the face of the great and terrifying day of the Lord, we can return to him and find a safe place. And more than that, we can experience grace and mercy and abundant blessing instead of wrath and judgment. If you haven't returned to the Lord with all your heart, don't put it off. Do it this morning. It's urgent. The day could come this morning. You can return to God because he loves to forgive and deal in mercy. And he doesn't just want to forgive. He wants to bless you in every way. At the end of your outline, there's a prayer. You'll see it. If you don't have one, you can chuck a hand up or look at the person next to you if that's awkward. There's a prayer that you could pray right now or any time. Have a read for yourself. If you want to return to the Lord, you just say something like that to God. It is so good and so worth it. I pray that you would. For those who already have, continue to return with all your heart. It's bigger than you. It is for God's glory. Know that you're not working for God's blessings. He has lavished them on those who return to him. The great and terrible day of the Lord is coming. And so return with all your heart. Return urgently. Because of God is the gracious one who we can and want to come to. God's glory is on the line and that is the thing that matters. And when you do, God will open the storehouse of blessing for you. Nothing more for you to do. So be glad and rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that yet, even now, in the face of the great and terrifying day, you have made a way that we can return to you. That Jesus on the cross bore the punishment that we deserve 
that we might return to you with all our hearts, that we might return to you urgently and receive grace and mercy instead of judgment and your wrath. Father, we are sorry for our sin. We grieve our sin. Help us to come to you. And Father, we are so glad and rejoice in the comforting words that we know as soon as we turn, your heart is for us. You do far more than forgive us. You seek to bless us and you have blessed us. So we rejoice in you, our Lord. Amen. Being a Christian is just not always froth and bubble, happy, easygoing. I know some of you are going through really hard times at the moment. Others are in a fantastic point in lives. It's good to stop and remember that great and glorious day when Jesus returns and trials will fade and all things will finally be made right. Let's all stand together. I am alive, saved by your sacrifice. Death overcome, glory dispels the night. to wake from death to life out of darkness arise I am set free Yeah.